Hello, and welcome to the CBC The Rim podcast. CBC The Rim is a church in San Antonio, Texas. Due to COVID-19, our gatherings look a little different right now, but we encourage you to make space to lean in and listen to what God wants to say to you. We also encourage you to participate as you listen. We hope you enjoy the message. Well, wherever you find yourself, maybe it's an apartment or in your living room, or maybe you're even in someone else's living room participating in house church or virtual house church, uh, I just want you to know that I love you. And man, we are praying for you in this season, asking God to do some really amazing things. And um, even just, I'm going to be honest with you, normally we film this gathering while Tilly's taking a nap and uh, we had to reshoot this. And so she's up, she's awake. So she may make an appearance, you may hear crying in the background, and we're just going to press on if that happens. And so uh, I love you. Welcome to our living room. Um, but God gave me just two verses um, that I wanted to read over us, and they have nothing to do with the the message today, but they're just, man, I think God just pressing them and made them heavy on my heart that I just want to share with you. I think there'll be an encouragement to you. And and the first is actually in Leviticus 19. um, And it says this, it says, when the alien or the stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. The stranger who resides with you shall be able or should be to you as the citizens among you. You shall love the stranger or alien as yourself for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. And so we see the rim, you've known since the beginning that our heartbeat has been for the stranger, the refugee in our community. And I'm so proud of us that just a few weeks ago, we got to love our city, and, and we boxed up all of this food, and you hand-delivered it in two homes. You knocked on doors, and you man, got to deliver this food to families in need. And many of you, you got invited into the houses, and you shared tea, or even shared a meal and you got to build a relationship. And we said this at the beginning, that's, we're not just a one and done. Like we're in this for the long haul. We want to love this community, man, for, for the next 10 years, if God gives us that. And one of the ways that we can come alongside of these families in this season as they start to go back to school is to buy backpacks for them. And you can do that at lovesatx.com. But here's the reason I share this as church. Our prayer, and and this is what we're going for. We're not going to stop until it happens. We want to supply a backpack for every single refugee kid in that community. You you heard that right. Every single one of these refugee kids. It's about 600 plus backpacks. And this is why I tell you that, because I want you to mark your calendar for August 23rd. August 23rd, that's a Sunday. Sunday morning at 10 a.m., we're going to gather at Basis Charter School in the lawn. And if you feel comfortable, we would love for you to come. We're going to practice social distancing. But what we're going to do is we're going to pray and we're going to worship together. And then we're going to have an opportunity for us to pray over all of these backpacks. You're going to have an opportunity to write an encouraging note to these students telling them that you you believe in them, that you're that you're willing to fight for them and pray for them. And then here's what's crazy. After we pray, after we worship, that you and I are going to have an opportunity to put those backpacks in our car, drive them into the community, knock on the door, and hand deliver those backpacks to those kids. And so 
another amazing opportunity. So mark your calendar. You're not going to want to miss this. We're going to have some cool activities. We've got some uh, wristbands that you can let people know how comfortable you are with distancing. Uh, and so maybe you're like, hey, no, listen, keep six feet away. Or maybe you're like, hey, I'm all about a fist bump or a high five. Or hey, listen, give me a big hug. I don't mind. Uh, we're, we're just, we're going to love each other and then we're going to serve our city. So August 23rd, don't miss that. And then the second verse that God put on my heart is in Hebrews 10. I just want to read this over you. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Church, in this season, we can't meet uh, in a large setting. We can't, 500 of us can't cram into basis. But just because of COVID and just because of quarantine, um, it doesn't mean that that verse is still not true. And, and I really do believe that the author of Hebrews, what he means is just that social connection. And so we don't want to neglect the gathering of the believers. And right now in this season, that may look like a Zoom call. That may look like virtual house church or actual house church as we start to feel more comfortable with that. But regardless, we're called to be connected to believers. We're called to see each other face-to-face or on a phone call. And so I want to encourage you, if, if you haven't already in this season, man, get connected to a house church. That's not our plan B. That's not like we've said from day one, like September 15th, when we launched this church, we said that house church is the engine, the heartbeat of who we are that that's actually more important than even basis and meeting in the large gathering. And so we want you to get involved, get connected. And you can do that by going to groups. Um, you can find some, some people, uh, a community that are meeting near you. And I think that's so important. Or if you're just like, Drew, honestly, I'm introverted. Community scares me. It's really easy for me to, to be anonymous on uh, just the video, but to actually be known is really scary. Then fill out a connection card. We would love to walk alongside of you and, uh, and just journey with you and help you in this. So um, let me pray for you really quick, and then we're going to dive into this message. So Jesus, wherever we find ourselves today, we know that we're not tuning in, we're not participating by accident or happenstance, that we're on here for a reason. And God, I believe that you have something in store for every person on the other side of this screen, every person in a virtual house church, every person gathering together. And God, I pray that you would speak in a language that we understand and in a way that would actually change and transform us. We love you, Jesus. We give you this space and time. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, grab it, and I want you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. As you turn there, I want to tell a quick story. Like, I love living in San Antonio. Like, love it. Passionate, ready to get the essay tattoo. But I love the Alamo. It's one of my favorite parts of our city. And anytime someone comes to visit, like, I 
them quick to take them downtown, to give them the tour, to tell them the history. I've even had the chance to actually preach in front of the Alamo and inside of the Alamo. And it is, uh, I just have kind of deemed myself as the, the unofficial pastor of the Alamo. But I love the history about it. One thing that's interesting to me is in March 1st in 1836, and there was a group of Texans that were bringing reserves and supplies to the volunteers in Alamo. And they brought it at night and the volunteers mistook them as the Mexican army and began to fire upon them. And even one soldier was wounded. Now that's interesting because when we're facing friendly fire, there's obviously lots of danger. But what's really interesting is that after all of the volunteers were defeated and actually killed, that the Mexican army continued to wage war uh, for like almost like I mean for several hours and ended up killing and wounding hundreds of their own soldiers because they didn't know that the battle was already won. And why why do I share that with you? I, I share that with you because it's actually friendly fire. The the attack of the enemy within the opposition when, when, when it's inside of the camp that's actually more damaging and more dangerous than the enemy on the outside. And as we continue to walk through Nehemiah, we've seen him face lots of challenges. In chapter one, we watched him face the personal challenge and conviction as he heard about the walls being destroyed in Jerusalem and it broke his heart. And then we watch this challenge that moves, it becomes political as he makes his request known to the king. And then it becomes an administrative challenge in chapter three as he tries to figure out how to put the right workers at the right place for the right reasons. And then last week, we heard from Pastor Ed who did an amazing job in showing us the challenge of discouragement and how when life gets hard and the enemy presses in that we don't give up. Up, that we continue to press on and we don't quit. And if we don't quit, that in a due season, at a right time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. So such an encouraging message. And as we move into chapter five, we're gonna see that the opposition from the outside moves to the inside. That the opposition that once caused unity, them banding together, is going to start causing division that the same community is starting to self-destruct because of these festering grievances. And the workers now face a new enemy that's much harder to conquer than the previous ones. And the timing couldn't be worse because the walls are almost done. And then Nehemiah has to put down his heart hat and he turns his attention from the construction of the walls to the walls that are being built between the people of God. And the reason I share this is because, man, I think that many of us in this season, we feel, we know that there's an opposition. We know there's a disruption. We know, yes, COVID's out there. Yes, making decisions of what school's going to look like in the fall or what's our job going to be. All of those oppositions, those are heavy and those are legitimate. But what's way more dangerous in this season is, is the disruptions that we face in our own household, with our own family, or even within our own church. And even this, man, week, if I'm just honest with you, church, like my heart has been so heavy and so broken. As we've even, man, Jane and I getting phone calls of, of people in the church that we love dearly, that we've been walking with, that are just like, hey, Drew, we're out. 
Like we're, we're done. And, and that wound that comes from a close friend or a close brother hurts so much more than that of an enemy. This is what King David would say in Psalm 55 where he says, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure, endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from it. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of God. That the enemy within is so much more damaging and dangerous and because they're closer than the enemy from the outside. And so today's message is just called Facing Friendly Fire. And I want to kick it to you for a quick second for you to ask this question. Why is it that friendly fire is more wounding or more damaging than that of the enemy's attack? So take a second and process this question. Well, what we're going to see today in the text is we're going to see kind of three stages. We're going to see some complaints that are brought to Nehemiah about all this friendly fire. We're going to see the steps that he takes, and then we're going to see the example that he sets for his people. And in, in the very first ver- verse, there's a word that kind of sets the tone for the entire chapter, and it's the word against that strife is brewing and tensions mounting and heads are starting to butt. And the first thing that we see in these first few verses is the complaints that Nehemiah hears. And in the midst of a great work for a great God, we're going to see a great outcry. Verse one says, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews that this wasn't just a little disagreement or a minor problem. They're not crying out against the Samaritans or some enemy from the outside, but actually against their own people. If you think about like what's going on right now in Portland or Seattle with the riots and the looting and even anarchy going on, while there are many that in that season are reaching out to help Sadly, there are so many that are looking for opportunities to take advantage of those hurting and those in need by whether price gouging or stealing or even attacking people in their own city. And that's similar to what we see happening here in the text. The city of Jerusalem lies in ruins and people are powerless to help themselves. Taxes are high and because a long drought, there's, there's this bad famine that's kind of stepped in. And most everyone has been working with all of their hearts to build the walls. But there are also those alarming acts of greed resulted in this widespread poverty and injustice. And we see in these very first few verses, there's four and different groups of people that are involved in the community crisis. And I'll just read uh, verse um, two through, uh, we'll kind of go down to uh, verse five. And it says this, some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying that we've had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on fields and vineyards. 
And although we are man, of the same flesh and blood as a countryman, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. That we see these four different groups. We see there's these people who owned land, or they didn't own any land, and they had no food. So they're wrestling. They go, hey, we don't have any food, and we have no land to help ourselves. And then we see that the second group, there's these landowners who had to mortgage their property in order to buy food. And then after that, there's this group who's complaining that taxes are so high that there were that some people were, were, were forced to borrow money just to pay bills and taxes. And some of us, we might find ourselves having to do something similar in the coming days. But this last group is the most heartbreaking. It's those that were being exploited, that the wealthy were making loans with crazy interest rates and then taking the land and even children as collateral. Families had to choose between starvation and servanthood. And then when the crops failed because of the famine, the creditors took away their property and then sold their children into slavery. Don't miss this. While it wasn't against God's law to loan money to another person, they were not to act like a pawn shop owner or a banker charging high interest. Instead, Deuteronomy 23 clearly states that God speaks to his people and he says, do not charge your brother interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. You can charge a foreigner interest, but not, not a brother, like Israelite, a fellow man, a countryman, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land you are entering to possess. God tells his people that they are responsible to take care of their own people. He says, don't charge interest or, or, or yet, better yet, like be radically generous and give without expecting anything in return. And sadly, as Americans in the West, we have become so radically individualized that we think, hey, it's all about taking care of my own. As long as I'm good, as long as my family's good, then we, we can kind of turn a blind eye to those around us who are in need or hurting. And so let me just kind of ask, I want to kind of kick it to you. And I want, I want, yeah, I want you to process this question. How, how does radical individualism keep us from radical generosity? How does radical individualism keep us from radical generosity? Take this time. Welcome back. Well, here we're going to move from the complaints that Nehemiah hears to the steps that he takes. So Nehemiah hears the complaints in these first five verses, and now in verse six, we see he starts to move. He starts to, to, to step into action, um, to stop the strife. And in verse six, it says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Like this lit him up. It wasn't just that Nehemiah had a short fuse or a bad temper, 
This is what the Bible calls a righteous anger. That Moses expressed this kind of anger when he broke the stone tablets of the law in Exodus 32, when he sees that the people of God, after just making these vows to God, these wedding vows, they immediately start to worship um, idols. And there's this anger and he ends up breaking these tablets. Or Jesus filled with holy rage. And when he sees the Pharisees' hard heart in Mark chapter 3, or when he clears out the temple in Luke 19. It's that same righteous anger. And it says that while Nehemiah was very angry, verse 7 says, I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called them together uh, to a large meeting to deal with them. Nehemiah, after hearing, he gets angry, and he takes the time to ponder the charges before he accused the nobles and the officials. One translation puts it this way. He says, I mastered my feelings. The Hebrew, the literal translation means my heart consulted within me. So instead of him going off on the people in the heat of the moment, Nehemiah paused. He takes a deep breath. He thinks about it for a while. And then, I mean, it's almost like he's thinking back on Proverbs 16, where it challenges us to go, I mean, it's better to be slow-tempered than to be famous. It's better to have self-control than to control an army. So after thinking things over, Nehemiah decides to publicly confront the people whose selfishness had created the strife. Since it involved the whole nation, it demanded a public rebuke and a public repentance. And so then what he's going to do here in this rebuke, he's going to appeal to six things. He's going to go right for their heart. And this is, man, such so practical, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. Um, but I just want you to know in, in seven chapter, or sorry, verse 7 through 13, we see that Nehemiah appeals to their love. He's like, hey, these are your people. This is your, your heartbeat. Then he, he, he appeals to remember the story, the redemptive purpose that God has always been about restoration, and then he appeals to God's word. He's like, hey, don't forget, God told us that this isn't right, that we're not called to, to, to charge our people interest or to sell them into slavery. And then he, he appeals to just that like, we're called to be an example to the world. We're called to be light on a dark hill. And then he appeals to his own actions. He's like, look, examine my own life. Like that, That's not how I did this. And so he walks, he's able to do that in full integrity. And then lastly, he appeals to them by the judgment of God. And in dramatic fashion, I love, he like takes his cloak, he just like, he wrings it out. And he says, if you don't keep this promise, then may God just like, man, just totally disregard everything about you. Your finances, everything, just wipe you away. Um, and the congregation, after seeing all of these appeals, they respond to Nehemiah with an amen, which is a religious agreement to what has been said. The word literally means, amen literally means, so be it, which is so cool. Like when we, when we pray, we've asked God for all of these things. We lined our heart with his, and we asked for his kingdom to move in our city. And then we say, amen, and everyone else kind of responds, amen. It's a moment where we go, so be it, so be it. I love that. And then after this, all the people of God, they, they praise, they worship in unison. 
And what started as a great cry of outrage led to a confrontation, which led to a commitment to change and concluded with shouts of praise in a corporate worship service. And I love that. By Nehemiah appealing to what matters to them, helping them see like this is what God wants, that they're able to actually begin to link arms again. And so here's what I want to do. Church, if you're, if you're meeting in a house church and you're going to be teaching the back half, I want to kick it to the house church leaders for you to teach the back half of this message, uh, or you can stay with me. But so far, we've seen that all of the, the complaints that came to Nehemiah, the steps that he takes, and these last few verses, verses 14 through 19, we're going to see the example that Nehemiah sets with his life. Verse 14, it says, Moreover, From the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, unto his 32nd year, so that's 12 years it says, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. In describing his own lifestyle during this period, Nehemiah's memoir tells us of how he behaved, that he was motivated by two biblical principles during his 12 years as governor in the land of Judah. Like he was devoted to the great commandment spelled out by Jesus in Mark 12 that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And so before thinking about how he could make a prophet, Nehemiah considers first, how do I please God? And then in verse 15, he describes how the previous governors got wealthy at the expense of all of his people. And when comparing himself with the others, Nehemiah stated, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. And then in verses 17 and 18, we see that that he did not live extravagantly, but instead that he lived generously by providing meals for others and not using his expense count to do so. Because he loved and he revered God, he also loved the people that he was called to serve. That's a great example for us to follow. When we have conflict within the church, within the bride, within the body, or within even our own home, we start first by focusing on God and our relationship with him. And as you and I do that, we'll have more love and compassion for others, even for those that we have conflict with. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, when we're reminded what Jesus did for us, that that he died, I mean, he gave everything for us, died on a cross for us, and he continues daily to pursue you and I, showing us compassion and love and forgiveness, even though we don't deserve a drop of it. 
when we sit with that, when we're reminded of that, when we reflect on that, then, then who are we to withhold love? Like, who are we to keep the compassion from the people that we feel like have wronged us? I had shared this story sometimes with um, my guys that, I'm, that we're kind of doing life with. And I talk about my first year of marriage. I remember being so frustrated. Jade and I had had this conflict. And um, we, don't, we don't have any conflict or fight anymore. That was just in our first year. Um, totally kidding. Uh, we actually got in a pretty tough argument even this week. And um, there's those moments where you just like, it's, it's tense and you're like, oh, and I, I just need to take a break. I need to go outside. I need to take a walk and walking outside and just frustrated and talking to the Lord and like, God, I feel like I'm 100, maybe not 100%, like 99% in the right. Like this is all on Jane. Like if she would do this different or she would think this way or if she wouldn't have had that tone and I'm walking with the Lord feeling so justified and I just feel like God just goes, Drew, you go back in and you apologize. I was like, Jesus, I, I, I don't know if you just heard me, but I've done very little wrong. Like, I don't, I don't, she needs to be the one to apologize. And it's just like Jesus goes, Drew, go back in and apologize. I'm like, but God, that's not fair. And he goes, you know, I just man, it felt like Jesus just dropped this in my heart. He goes, Drew you weren't 99% wrong. You were 100% wrong when I pursued you. And I pursued you to the point of laying my life down on a cross to reconcile what's been broken. The least you can do is walk back in that house and you pursue reconciliation. Church, when we understand what Jesus has done for us, it allows us to face friendly fire with compassion and conviction. Now, I want to just I want us to see just four quick principles to ponder. I'll give you a very brief just exposition of this passage, but I want us just for four things for us to ponder. And here they are. Um, we need to know that there is a direct correlation between the effectiveness of our mission and how we treat others. A church, we must be the church before we can ever build the church. We must care for one another before we can ever hope to reach this community and this city for Jesus. Our love starts with loving one another. We also need to think that, remember that relational problems are inevitable and we can't ignore them. Or we should never just pull the ripcord and be like, I'm out with the first riff. The first fight, we don't get a divorce. We don't walk away. We press in, we pursue, and we fight. Why? Because we're family. And even though it's painful and it may seem easier to avoid or even deny relational issues, we must face conflict head on. That it's painful to stop strife, but it only gets more difficult the longer we wait. Third, we must take the initiative to restore relationships where... uh, well, I told you that Tilly was uh, probably going to make uh, an entrance and she found Jane's phone and turned on our speakers and that was Frozen 2. You're welcome. I was going to try to play it off and uh, I couldn't. So, But like I was saying, point number two, relational problems are inevitable. We can't ignore them. Ponder The third thing to ponder is we must take initiative to restore relationships whether we want to or not. Don't wait for the other person to come to you. 
you need to go to them. Be tenacious about this one. If you've been hurt, then go talk it out as Jesus commanded in Matthew 18. Or if you've hurt someone, go and confess what you did according to what Jesus said in Matthew 5. You're covered either way. The fourth thing to ponder is this. God's reputation is at stake when we have conflict. And here's what I mean by that. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed that the world around us would know God's heart of love when brothers and sisters in Christ are brought together in complete unity, even when they disagree, even when they see things a different way, when they're brought together in unity, that that's what shows the world God's heart. 1 John 4 tells us that that no one's ever seen God, but that when you and I, followers of Jesus, when we love one another, that God's presence is put on full display for the world to see, and that's actually how the world will come to know and love him, that that's what makes him attractive, that we are called to make God attractive to those who need him. And, And we can only do that by living in loving community with each other, not not tolerating one another, but loving one another. And just in real talk, it is impossible to love one another if we're not walking with each other, whether that be in house church or Zoom or FaceTime, phone calls or even text messages. We have to be in each other's lives to love one another. And then here, so make it even more practical. Here are four action steps in order to help stop friendly fire. And a lot of these, man, are just so good. Uh, Whether this is a marriage or this is with roommates, um, they're just, man, just very practical, even like most of this I got from counseling. And so here's what I want to focus on is just if we kind of land the plane. Four action steps. Number one, before you deal with friendly fire, make sure it's a moral issue. Make sure it's a moral issue. Nehemiah was very angry because of the injustice he saw in verse 6. And if you've been wrong and sinned against, your anger is justified. But on the other hand, if you're just frustrated or upset at someone just because they have a different opinion than you, or they didn't do something the way that you would have done it, uh, or you just maybe simply don't like what they did, that's not a moral issue. So we can cut them some slack and we can give them grace. The second thing is think before speaking. Think before speaking. If you've been sinned against, if you've been hurt, take some time to ponder what's been done and how you feel about it. That's exactly what Nehemiah did in the first part of verse 7. Anger is a gift from God that motivates us to action but it can easily backfire if we just let things fly out of our mouths. So take those feelings to God in prayer. Sit, ponder, ask ask questions like, why do I feel this way? What caused that? What's the motivation? And if it's just emotion, like push pause there. Jane says all the time, man, your emotions are a good thing and they're allowed in the car. You just don't want them behind the steering wheel. You don't want them in the driver's seat. And so think before you speak. Third, meet face to face. Meet face to face. I've heard someone say once, confrontation is caring enough about another person to get the conflict out on the table and talk about it. And just as Jesus commanded in Matthew 18, we are to be direct with the people that we have strife with. And Nehemiah went straight to the source in verse 8, and he confronted the people with what they had done wrong. 
when we ignore this critical step that we often end up talking to someone else about how we've been offended by someone else. And when you go to a third party, then you, you kind of create this communication triangle. And in some ways, I mean, in a lot of ways, you quickly get into like danger zone of gossip. I have a friend who's just so loving. And if I start and talking about a situation with another person, they quickly ask the question, they'll just go, hey, have you talked to this person already? Or, or would you talk about this if they were here? And if, if, if I say no, then they go, then we're done. We don't need to talk about this. And then if I say like, yeah, maybe I think I'd be cool with this. Like I'd be cool talking about this if they were here. Then they go, well, then let's invite them into the conversation and just be safe. And we all need friends like that. And so go face-to-face. Don't send a passive-aggressive text message. And sit down. Maybe even share a meal and bring that confrontation, realizing that the goal is always, always restoration. Which brings me to the fourth action step. Seek resolution. Seek resolution. Our goal in stopping strife or confronting conflict should always be resolution and the restoration of the relationship. We shouldn't be set on just proving ourselves right and the other person wrong. We're not to crush our brothers and sisters, but to build them up and have the issues resolved so that we can get back to kingdom work. When the workers in the scripture, they take these steps, the team was able to get back to the job that that was commissioned to them to do by God. And if we allow strife and discord in our own life to go on, then kingdom work will be put like just to a standstill. If we would follow Nehemiah's example, my guess is that 95% of our relational problems would be solved. And if we have an issue with anyone in the church, anyone in our family, any brother or sister, let's follow those four steps. Make sure it's moral, think before speaking, meet face to face, and seek resolution. In an old monastery in Germany, I'm told you can see two racks of ancient deer antlers permanently interlocked. Apparently, the animals were fighting fiercely and their horns became entangled and they couldn't disengage. And as a result, they both died of hunger. Church, if there's anyone in your life right now that there's strife, there's tension, there's conflict, that the scripture tells us, man, go to that brother, go to that sister, and you seek reconciliation and then come back and let's worship. Then come back and let's seek the Lord. I want you to know, CBC The Rim, God has called us to do a great work for a great God. And we're called to link arms and do this together. And we never want to let strife or enemy fire inside of our camp distract or divide us from doing what God has called us to. I love you deeply, church, and I'm excited about what he's going, what God's doing in the days to come. We believe the best is yet uh, to come. And so I want to kick it to you for one last thing for you to process and just be real. Get 120 seconds to ask the question, God, what are you saying to me? Like, what are you speaking to me through, through your word? And then what do you want me to do in response? I love you, church. We'll see you soon.
Thank you for listening to the CBC The Rim podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message. If you want to learn more about CBC The Rim, such as our online gathering times, you can find us at cbctherim.com or on Instagram and Facebook at CBC The Rim. We hope to see you soon.